cost of goods is the dominant expense. The funny thing is that grocers seem to spend more effort squeezing payroll than squeezing costs of goods sold, though there is at least five times more opportunity to save money in the latter. That is from the insightful book Becoming Trader Joe by Joe Coulomb. He is the founder of Trader Joe's, one of our favorite companies, personally one of my favorite companies and my go-to grocery store. And throughout his book, he talks about many of his lessons from the early days of founding Trader Joe's to scaling it into a bigger business across California, one of the bigger grocery businesses. So we're going to be going through the story that is Trader Joe's foundings from the 60s to the late 80s when Joe Coulomb sold the business. And we're going to see many lessons across especially retailing, but also just business strategy and customer satisfaction as well. So I think we're going to really like this episode. It's going to be exciting. And let's jump right into the episode. Joe Coulomb's story starts in the late 1950s. He was working at a company, Rexall, under really a mentor of his, a role model named Bud Fisher. And they were noticing in Texas, this big convenience store chain called 7-Eleven was starting to get really popular. And Joe's mentor, Bud Fisher, was encouraging him to start really a replica grocery store, convenience store model in California. They saw California as this rising economy as well. And Joe was encouraged by his mentor to start what formed really Pronto Markets. This was the company Joe was running before Trader Joe's. And we learn a lot of early lessons on his strategy behind retailing with his management of Pronto Markets. So back then they would say the typical grocer's return on investment was 54% in the early 1950s. 54%. So this was a very nascent industry, and there was a lot of money to be made if you could do it well. Now, Joe was creating Pronto Markets under a larger company, Rexall, that was his parent company. And Rexall, the head of Rexall, Justin Dart, he decided to go out and buy the Tupperware brand, which was very popular at the time because of their Tupperware parties. They reached quick scale amongst different communities and brand recognition. So they started to sell off many of their grocery stores to prioritize the Tupperware brand. His parent company, Rexall, was prioritizing Tupperware over grocery. And Joe, at this point, he realized he has to do something with Pronto Markets because it's just going to get sold off to another owner if he doesn't take matters into his own hands. So him and his mentor, Bud, they go out, they try taking Pronto Markets public. They realize that's not really an option because the market had started to slow down at that point. And instead, they figure maybe we could just buy this business ourselves. If we could raise the capital, maybe we could just buy Pronto Markets ourselves and really manage it ourselves. So Joe went around, he went to family, he went to friends, he was able to invest 25000 from raising money from family and friends. And then he also got a big loan. He leveraged the business from Bank of America. And luckily, he was able to buy the business now. He got the capital to buy the business. 
But since so much of the business was leveraged, he ended up facing these very high servicing costs, the financing costs, and one unprofitable store, Culver City Store, almost threw them into bankruptcy very early on. So both this combination of high interest rates and one poor performing store was really throwing off their business. Luckily, he was able to continue through that struggle and he was able to start paying off the interest. And it was about in 1965, as he was competing intensely with 7-Eleven, he was still very highly funded with leverage. His friend Merritt Adamson had funded a lot of pronto markets with leverage, but his friend Merritt Adamson wasn't working for a bank. He was actually working for a milk sales company that was providing the milk to pronto markets. So they had this natural connection. It was basically a supplier. And some of the milk sales operations had slowed down significantly at that point. So that company, Merritt Adamson's company, had to sell their operation to 7-Eleven, the gorilla in the industry, and really Pronto Markets, Joe Colomb's biggest competitor. So that effectively cut off Joe's funding source, and it put him into this battle that he really can't win. He said about this time, he said, the convenience store business is 90% real estate, 10% all other, including merchandising, personnel, etc. In real estate, it's the tenant's balance sheet that counts. Between 7-Eleven and Pronto, it would be no contest. So Joe is put in this very difficult position at this point where his main supplier, the one who's providing him the leverage, was sold to his main competitor, 7-Eleven, cuts off his funding source. His balance sheet looks much weaker now because he's not able to get access to quick and easy financing. And he realized he has to change a few fundamental things about his business, about pronto markets, to compete more effectively. One of those very early lessons, and it became a core value that he took on in both pronto markets and later to Trader Joe's, was this idea of paying people well. And we're seeing this idea, these win-win incentives and paying people well across so many of our entrepreneurs and different books insights to this point. We saw it in the last episode with Ed Thorpe. We saw it with Sam Zell. We know Charlie Munger is a big proponent of win-win incentives. Netflix's Reed Hastings talks about paying your employees higher than their range, expected range, because it creates this better talent pool. And in addition, it lowers your turnover. It lowers the need to find new talent. So Joe Colomb, when he talks about this idea of paying people well, he said, this is the most important single business decision I ever made to pay people well. First Pronto Markets and then Trader Joe's had the highest paid, highest benefited people in retailing. No one has been willing to pay the wages and benefits and thereby attract and keep the quality of people who work at Trader Joe's. So we're seeing here how much Joe Colomb valued this top talent. He recognized you have to pay the talent well to attract the top talent. And more importantly, to retain the top talent, to keep them for a long time, that paying them well, it will lead to significant cost savings. Because a big issue in the grocery and convenience store retailing businesses are there's such high levels of turnover. 
So any way you could avoid that ends up being a huge benefit. He would later say that to make sure employees are taken care of and they stay productive, he sets up interviews between the employee and the store manager's supervisor, so not even their store manager, but the actual supervisor, where they could vent grievances about the work because he truly thought that reducing turnover is one of the most important traits of these grocery businesses. He said, that's why I believe that turnover is the most expensive form of labor expense. So any way he could reduce that turnover, even if it leads to paying people higher upfront, would end up being a significant cost saving for him on the long term. Now, obviously, if you're paying higher wages, you have to take other strategic decisions to offset that with potentially higher sales. So he said to justify the higher wages, first, we up the ante by taking only prime locations, which could generate the most sales, even though the rents were higher. A lease is an investment, perhaps the most serious and certainly the least changeable a retailer can make. Financially, a lease is simply a long-term loan. This kind of hidden debt is recognized only in the footnotes that auditors prepare. Most retail bankruptcies come from bad real estate leasing decisions. So this was another core tenant from him that he learned very early on, and it was this consequence of deciding to pay people very high wages. He also realized he needs to select for the best real estate because you attract more clientele, you generate higher sales, and you don't burden yourself with bad leases and bad locations where if the business slows down and you want to shut down that operation, that lease is effectively a loan. If you try to back out of the lease, you'll likely get sued by your landlord or the landlord is going to come after you to get the remaining amount in that loan. This idea of real estate leasing became a very important part of his management strategy. And he discussed it in the form of reversible and irreversible decisions. He said, early in my career, I learned there are two kinds of decisions, the ones that are easily reversible and the ones that aren't. 15-year leases are the least reversible decisions you can make. So that reminds me of Jeff Bezos. He talks about a similar thing with irreversible decisions and reversible, or he says type one and two decisions. And this framework of thinking, it's meant to delegate a lot of the decisions that are easily reversible, whereas decisions that are irreversible, like a 15-year lease that is this effective loan, if you get stuck in it for a long time and it turns out to be a poor location, it could really hurt your business. Those irreversible decisions, you should take into your own hands as the CEO or as the head executive, the manager of the business. So we're seeing many of the strategic decisions that Coulomb is developing, and those decisions will transfer later on to Trader Joe's. These two core ideas of pay people well and prioritize the top locations that prime real estate in the retailing and grocery space. As Joe Coulomb was progressing with Pronto Markets, he was starting to notice some of the real issues, the perilous effects of competition and some of these race to the bottom effects that we've discussed in past episodes where we want to avoid competition like the plague. So he said, the basic problem is that convenience store retailing is a commodity business that is hard to differentiate. 
And he was starting to notice there were two demographic trends that he felt like he could really lean into. One was college education rates were rising. And the second was that there was much cheaper international travel. Planes had allowed people to travel internationally for much cheaper rates than in the past when only very wealthy people could travel. And this was really a time, he called it the I Love Lucy period, where after World War I, with the rise of network radio and newspapers, these big, big publications nationwide or citywide publications, brands became much more important to grocery stores because these big brands would advertise across all these big channels like the radio and newspapers. And then stores would sell those top products at a slight loss to encourage foot traffic. It would be this loss leader where you'd sell the popular brands at a slight loss or maybe at cost, and people would come to the store for that. But then you sell your milk and your normal everyday products for a 20% profit. That's really where you make your money. He said regarding this time, television was the most powerful advertising medium ever invented, and it began to homogenize American culture to a startling degree. That's with the shows like I Love Lucy and this other mass market content that caused really many consumers to desire the same big brands. It kind of eliminated the ability for small brands to market because it was too expensive. You had to be this big brand that could appeal to the masses. And it was the same with these network TV shows. They called it back then, they called it least offensive content because they wanted to appeal to the widest network possible. Now, over the next few years, smaller cable channels started popping up that could really devote themselves to these hardcore niches like sports or cooking channels. And that was very similar to Trader Joe's goal of being a differentiated grocery offering. So he was recognizing these demographic trends, this higher college education rates and cheaper international travel. He saw that these mass market TV shows were promoting big brands and he wanted to be more unique, go into the distinguished area where he would luckily face less competition. And that formed much of the basis of Trader Joe's, which he started in 1967, the first store was in Pasadena with about a 4,500 square foot footprint and taking those lessons from Pronto Markets of paying people well, picking great location, offering some basic grocery goods a little bit different than the convenience store, a big selection of liquor and wine, which wine was not popularly sold at the time, and then many other random discount items like books or pictures. You might think of Trader Joe's as one of the more esoteric cable channels, the supermarkets as NBC, CBS, ABC. That will remind me of the comparison today between Substack and big publications like the Wall Street Journal or like the New York Times, where companies like Substack, and this was especially enabled with the internet age, niches are able to become core businesses, this idea of a thousand true fans, where Substack will have tons of authors who focus on so many different niches, this wide variety of niches. You could have experts in sports analysis or in semiconductor investing or in cooking and different cooking recipes. Whereas Wall Street Journal or New York Times, 
that's more of a mass market newspaper and they're going to try to cover many things, but it's very hard to pay people the same amount and reach that very core niche audience because you're trying to appeal to the wide masses. So Trader Joe's was taking the similar model. They were trying to differentiate. They're trying to have much more unique products, not the big branded products, so they could stand out. They didn't want to have these big brands that would be in every other supermarket. They wanted to appeal to these overeducated and underpaid, these people with college educations, but not as wealthy, and give them access to great products at affordable prices. So one of the first products that Joe Coulomb wanted to prioritize as he was starting Trader Joe's was wine, which was not very popular at the time. It was not common for people to drink wine because California had these complex alcohol regulations. So he said, as I learned time and again, success in business often rests on a minute reading of the regulations that impact your business. This reminds me of how Sam Zell really understood net operating losses as the tax codes changed, and it gave him this advantage of buying unprofitable businesses, combining them with his profitable subsidiaries to effectively pay much lower taxes or no taxes at all. So we're seeing Joe Colomb similarly, he's trying to understand the regulations that dominate his business, these California alcohol regulations, and he recognized that once he got a hand around these, he could offer this great product that was not very consumed at the time, the wine, and he could do it at a very low price. No one else was competing with him. He said once he was able to crack through, he sourced better prices from these California wine vineyards and slowly people started buying too much wine. It forced this liquidation because people didn't understand what the consumer demand was for wine. And it gave Trader Joe's this great opportunity to come in and buy a ton of wine at a cheap price. When he was describing the time period, he said, we had found a loophole in the law and by God, we drove a truck through it. Within three years, we were the leading retailer of imported wines in California. This was the real beginning of the legend of Trader Joe's. And we know now Trader Joe's has offered $2 wine. It's two buck chuck. They really pioneered wine drinking in California and in the States in general when it wasn't really a trend, especially because they were offering it for such, such cheap prices. As of the writing for this book, 11% of Americans drank 88% of wine. So that is such a large power law. We spoke a lot about power laws in the three-parter on the power law VC bets. But this is a clear power law, and it was enabled because Coulomb was really leaning into this wine revolution, knowing that he's able to offer this cheap alcohol. He had already gotten hard liquor, but he was able to offer this cheap alcohol that he knew these overeducated and underpaid consumers would appreciate. As the early 70s started rolling around, Cologne started leaning into a new trend for his business. He was noticing that these Whole Earth Harry magazine catalogs were becoming very popular and they're emphasizing this health foods movement. So Cologne realized he wants to transition into more health foods. He felt like that would appeal to those overeducated and underpaid consumers, these people who 
would prioritize health. It would probably fit into their brand next to that idea of low travel and college education. So he started getting into products like granola and brie trees and adding more specialties in addition to their wine dominance, trying to slowly add deep product knowledge to each new area, each new item that they offer to customers. And especially leaning into this health focus that we've seen them retain up until today. Trader Joe's still has very much of a health connotation around it. Now, at the same time, the mid-70s was when a sharp recession hit. Cologne says the sharp 1974 recession combined with the stock market collapse gave me an excuse to cut back on opening more stores. In what was called the green movement, growth for the sake of growth was defined as a form of cancer. Growth for the sake of growth still troubles me. It seems unnatural, even perverted. So this was when he was starting to really optimize for higher sales per store, really increasing that productivity and the profitability per store instead of just leaning into growth. And we're seeing today the same thing is happening where many of the internet companies that were prioritizing growth at all costs over the last couple years are realizing now that growth needs to be profitable growth. You don't want to be just growing for the sake of growth, but be losing money on every order that a customer places or a consumer uses your product. So we should really remind ourselves of this concept. Growth for the sake of growth was defined as a form of cancer. And that especially hits during these recessions like Trader Joe's facing this sharp 1974 recession. Coulomb also really started to hone in on who his core customer is and how they want to appeal to these overeducated and underpaid people. He knew end of the day, he wants to offer a very low cost product, but is still very high value. And he knew his customers aren't fools. He said, there are no such thing as consumers, dolts who are driven by drivel to buy stuff they don't need or even want. There are only customers, people who are reasonably well-informed and very well-focused in their buying habits. We always look up to customers. We assumed they knew more than they did. We never talk down to them. I think this is very similar to what we see at Amazon and Costco, these companies that are constantly trying to prioritize low cost, but high value. And you recognize the customer is first, the customer is smart, they're looking for these bargains and they're looking for a trustful relationship, a company that will treat them well, and they're going to still get high value products. They're not going to get these cheap products that are going to break or going to taste bad, even though they're saving a dollar. So this focus on appealing to the customer, building trust, led to very strong word of mouth advertising and word of mouth growth. He said, as everyone knows, word of mouth is the most effective advertising of all. Trader Joe's became a cult of the overeducated and underpaid, partly because we deliberately try to make it a cult once we got a handle on what we were actually doing, and partly because we kept the implicit promises with our clientele. So now they're forming really this cult around that overeducated and underpaid that's causing this viral growth, this word of mouth growth, because people can actually trust these low cost products. They're not getting hemorrhaged for money and they knew it's high value. They knew it's these great products, similar to how 
Costco, again, Costco retains their members. They have that membership model and they retain their members for a very long time because people know they're consistently getting this great deal. There is this very inherent trust behind the business. And Joe Colomb, he even recognized that this dynamic is very similar to Costco. He said, the closest thing to it that I could see these days is Costco, which shares many features with Trader Joe's. So we see these businesses that could create trust, offer this great deal consistently, a low-cost product at high value. They're building durability of a relationship. When you offer that for a year, two years, slowly customers just start naturally trusting you to the sense that many members of Amazon Prime or of Costco's membership today, they've been members for years and they wouldn't think about even canceling. They trust that the price is this lowest price offered in the marketplace. And even if it's not, it's either one of the lowest prices or offers this high convenience. So that's another thing we should really stress. If we want word of mouth advertising, this viral engine to spread in our business, we need to build that trust with our customers by offering a great product without exerting our pricing power, without hemorrhaging them for the product. So that defines Joe Coulomb's whole earth hairy period, this time when he really leaned into health products, recognized that growth for the sake of growth is a form of cancer. It's not productive. You want to be profitable on a higher sales per store metric. He started recognizing who his core client was, this overeducated and underpaid client. And then building that trust, offering this low price but high value item to that client. In the mid 70s, that's when the period that he called Mac the Knife started to begin with some big regulation changes. So the fair trade dropped many of their rules on alcohol, and milk prices typically had a minimum price that you would optimize for a certain profit margin. And this minimum price for milk was dropped as well, both of which completely changed the game because, like we discussed earlier, many of these grocers would use other big brands as loss leaders, and then they would make their profits off of the liquor or the 20% profit margin on milk. So Joe Coulomb, describing this period, he said, for 40 years, supermarkets in California had operated on a simple formula run weekend ads promoting Best Foods mayonnaise and Folgers coffee below cost to get people in the door and sell them full-profit milk and alcohol. Suddenly, well, they didn't quite know what to do. The guaranteed profit on milk was gone, sure, but they were slow in coming to grips with the end of fair trade on alcohol. So this effect really started to push gross profits down across these grocers because they started competing with lower alcohol prices and lower milk prices. It created this race to the bottom effect, and it led to a lot of consolidation within the industry. Now, luckily, Trader Joe's and Joe Coulomb's experience at this point had given them a good advantage in wine and liquor because they had formed that specialty earlier on. And much of his choices around differentiation, not appealing to the big brand type of products, but to a different type of customer segment helped him in this period. And he started to emphasize some of those decisions even further. So at that point was when 
Joe Coulomb started to push much more into private label products. He said, Today, the great majority of products in Trader Joe's are private label or unknown label, like the fish, roe, many of the olive oils, etc. They developed this Trader Joe's brand around private label, which formed a lot of uniqueness amongst their products, and it created this discontinuity from the mass supermarkets. All the mass supermarkets were competing on the same products, and now with lower milk prices, lower alcohol, their profits were shooting down very fast, whereas Trader Joe's were able to offer these very unique products. They said, each private label product, therefore, had to have a reason, a point of differentiation. One of the funny Trader Joe's private label products that they started back then was Trader Darwin's Vitamins, which is a throwback to Darwin and survival of the fittest. It's these vitamins that help you stay healthy. And we've seen, if you go to Trader Joe's today, you'll see many of their products are private label. They were trying in these early days to separate from those mass supermarkets and to appeal to their niche audience, their overeducated and underpaid audience, and not be that big cable network, but rather a low-cost and high-value product provider. So much of Joe Coulomb's strategy at this time revolved around foods over non-foods. So he started dropping his greeting cards and magazines, all those products, and instead leaning into foods, grocery items, healthy foods especially. He optimized for the best pricing. He wanted to be the lowest cost, but still high value. He wanted these unique, healthy products, these private label goods that people would come to Trader Joe's for, like their almond butter back in the day. That was one of their very early innovations, this wine, almond butter, brie cheese, Trader Darwin's vitamins, so many different products that they were trying to get to appeal to the overeducated and underpaid, get them to not go to the mass supermarkets, but come to Trader Joe's instead. And something very important for him as well was not to have any lost leaders. So many of those other grocery chains would have that lost leader, that big brand that you would get people through the door and then they would buy your other products at a higher cost. But that strategy really became eroded with the fair trade changes in 1976, this start of Trader Joe's Mac the Knife period. And it really took away the incentive to provide these big loss leaders because you couldn't make massive profits on alcohol or milk anymore. You had to find ways to make profits on all products. Now, when Cologne is describing this strategy, he talks about how he's not targeting a certain percentage profit margin. A lot of people would ask him, oh, do you aim for a certain percentage? How do you guys optimize for your gross margin percentage? And his thought process is to really optimize for higher total dollar profits, not percentage profit margin. So he said, we never aimed specifically to hit 23%. Our approach when the buyers followed it was to find out what the going price was for a given SKU, stock keeping unit, and then undercut the market. At the same time, they were to consider how many dollars we made on each sale. Thus, at the time, I was willing to make only 13% on a $20 bottle of champagne because that was a 260 profit. For a $2 item, however, I wanted to make a much greater percentage. 
So we're seeing he's regulating the percentage gross profit margin based on how expensive the product is. And end of the day, the real focus was undercut the market, offer the lowest cost to appeal to these customers and give them this high value, this unique product. Some of the ways he started to do this was through this strategy of intensive buying. Intensive buying was an approach that focused on having deep, deep product knowledge. You had to have internal buyers in your company that had that deep product knowledge. You could recognize when there were certain deals or inconsistencies of pricing and opportunities to get great products at low prices. So he was able to really study the sourcing of different products one at a time. He focused intensely on an individual product one at a time, and he found ways to source these quality products at cheaper prices and created the strong relationship with his vendors, the right incentives for his buyers to enable these low cost and high value product offerings. Another core trait was paying buyers high salaries because you want to compensate them for the value they bring. If they're able to bring great products at low prices, then they should be paid well, where buyers back then may be getting paid 50000 from competitors, and Trader Joe's would pay them 150000 They would pay them three times the average cost amount because they knew that having a great buyer with that deep product knowledge was very valuable. He would also emphasize in intensive buying how you have to respond to offers within 24 hours. That way you show real commitment that you're actually willing to buy that product and you're serious because there are a lot of grocers that would yank the vendor's chains. And you really have to view your vendor as a partner. You can't view them as an adversary. So he said, most people, even vendors, act well if you treat them decently. He wanted to prioritize these win-win incentives across the board. So with his employees, with his vendors, with his customers, if everyone is happy, then the company will continue to grow and be successful. Intensive buying ended up being a core tenant of Trader Joe's during this Mac the Knife period because there were so many changes in regulation around alcohol and minimum milk prices that Trader Joe's, with paying the best buyers high salaries and having that deep product knowledge, was able to find great products, very unique private label products at low prices and still get a strong profit margin. They still got to a 23% profit margin with that ultimate goal of appealing and earning the trust of the overeducated and underpaid customer. This Mac the Knife period of the Trader Joe's story, the late 70s and early 80s, was when Coulomb and Trader Joe's really became a household name. They were able to lean into these private label products, offer healthy and unique products at a low cost while appealing to these smart customers. And they became clear about that prime location strategy by targeting these strong demographic areas like near colleges or 20 minutes from each other where you're able to still drive high volume. And the company would really prioritize high sales per square foot. So Cologne had already learned growth for the sake of growth is not worthwhile. What I want to prioritize is high sales per square foot, undercut the market, appeal most to that end customer, and eventually you get a good profit margin. You get 
20 to 25% gross profit margin, which is higher than many of the grocery chains, especially during this rough period, this aggressive competitive period of the end of fair trade alcohol regulation. One of Coulomb's big lessons and takeaways during this Mac the Knife period was this idea of double entry retailing, similar to double entry accounting. So he said, double entry retailing. On the left side of the ledger is the business in the terms of how its customers see it. I call this the demand side. On the right side of the ledger are the factors that limit or determine the retailer's ability to satisfy those demands, the supply side. With this idea of double entry retailing, he's discussing how you have to make decisions with the consequences of both sides in mind, such as customers oftentimes want lowest price and they want convenience and they want this wide breadth of assortment, a lot of products. And he realized having a ton of products would create these vendor complexity issues. It would be very hard to source those products and load them into a store at the low prices. So it fails that idea of double entry retailing. We want to oftentimes think of what are the consequences of both sides and how can you optimize for a great customer experience, that demand side, while not making the supplier side overly complex. So on the demand side retailing front, we see many of the core traits that live on today in our modern day Trader Joe's. One of those core elements was this idea of lower SKU counts, these lower stock keeping units, because they really want the most outstanding products. You wanna keep the products that have high dollar values per sale and they generate lots of sales in the stores rather than having 20 competing products for one item. It's where we see Trader Joe's will have only three peanut butters instead of 20 different peanut butters, or they may have two maple syrups instead of 30 different maple syrups. So Joe Coulomb says of this strategy, these low skew counts, he said, I believe that the greatest advantage of a limited skew retailer is that the employees at all levels can become truly knowledgeable about what they sell, a supply side factor. So we're seeing this idea of low skew counts. It checks off the boxes of both supply-side retailing where the vendors and your buyers, your employees, will have that deep product knowledge. And that in turn checks off the box of the demand side because the deep product knowledge is what enables much lower prices, cheaper prices. You're able to find and source these products at a discount. And it leads to this curation factor where in Trader Joe's, you're limiting the amount of choices, which we saw from Barry Schwartz's paradox of choice, less choices actually leads to more decision-making because when people have to compare 20, 30 different peanut butters or 20, 30 different products, it leads to this decision paralysis and eventual regret. Even with the decision you end up making, the peanut butter you end up selecting, you may end up feeling regret later because you passed on so many other options. We see these traditional mass market grocery chains, they prioritize for abundance and they want a lot of SKUs, they want that wide assortment of products. Whereas in today's day and age, if you're able to build a product that curates the best items, the highest quality, and you have that inherent trust, 
like Trader Joe's had been working to develop for the past 15 years, then you could actually see higher sales because you're leaving the best products, the best selling products are the ones you keep, the most outstanding products. And you're showing customers, you only have an easy decision to make. We've sussed out the 20 different peanut butters in the market, and we know both of these are great options, and either way, you're going to be happy with the option you choose. So this low skew count is clearly checking off both the demand side and the supply side. Another consequence of this low skew count was that they would constantly be cycling products and it creates this natural scarcity effect. So Joe Colomb is joking around when saying this. He says, ha, we made a point of going out of stock to encourage the customers to buy while it's still there. This idea of scarcity is as old as time. Human beings, we want what we can't have. And Trader Joe's, they take this to the extreme of constantly cycling products because they want to be offering you the best products if they find a better product then they will cycle out the old product. But it's also, they want to work your consumer psychology. If you think next time it may be out of stock or it may be discontinued, you end up buying three cans of peanut butter or you end up buying three of the salads that are your favorite salad instead of one because you're worried the next time you visit the store, it's not going to be there anymore. That's another tool that the modern day Trader Joe's has used really effectively where People naturally think that product may not be there the next time I'm here, so I may want to buy a little bit more. Another concept that checked off both of the boxes of demand side and supply side retailing was this idea of smaller square foot stores. So many of the core retailers have these massive stores, 40 to 60,000 square foot stores, whereas Trader Joe's, they oftentimes may have a four to 10,000 square foot store. And he said, the trend towards 60,000 square foot stores results in less convenient stores in terms of in and out speed. So this smaller store is helping the supply side because it leads to less logistic costs of actually loading the store and less leasing costs. But at the same time, it helps the demand side because it's a much quicker grocery experience. To go in and out of all the aisles of Trader Joe's, it may take you 20 minutes, whereas a traditional big grocery store, 40,000 square feet with 30 different aisles, 25 different aisles, you may have to go through for 30, 40 minutes just to get your bare essentials, and it ends up being a big hassle for the customer. To switch to the supply side, some of the core things that he emphasized on the supply side he would talk a lot about much of the supply side is creating those win-win incentives with your employees and vendors, making sure that your vendors are treated well, your employees are paid above the competitive rate, and then you limit the turnover with that high salary. He also spoke about the dangers of theft and crime. He was constantly thinking of ways to limit theft and crime. And one of the final tools he used on the supply side retailing front was keeping very high cash reserves, so then Coulomb could take advantage during these tough times, like the Mac the Knife period, where a lot of other grocers were facing trouble with the new regulations. He had high cash reserves, and he was able to really take advantage. He said, but the resultant cash position 
gave us the ability to make those killer deals in intensive buying. So these high cash positions enabled them to go out to these vendors, show that they're a very stable grocery chain. And if they make a big order, they're actually going to follow through with that order. And that leads to lower prices. It leads to better supplier relationships. We've seen very similar traits with Warren Buffett and John D. Rockefeller. They constantly talk about keeping high cash reserves, although it seems like it's a drain on your financials because it's not earning a return, it's not doing anything. It ends up being very valuable during these recessions and these tough times because it allows you to get ahead when all your competition is sitting still. We saw the same thing with Samsung in the chip war episodes. Samsung during some of the chip gluts and when semiconductor memory manufacturing slowed down, they had cash on hand and they decided to over-invest into new fabs and new chip capacity, new memory capacity, which led to a much higher market share. And it ended up cementing them as now one of the main memory chip providers. It's this idea of during the tough times, if you have these big cash reserves, you're able to over-invest and really take a lot of market share from your competitors in that recessionary period. So that concludes these core lessons that Cologne learned with his double entry retailing idea, this idea around building a business that benefits both the customers while also thinking about the consequences on the supply side. You want to create these win-win incentives all across the board and every decision you make will have these ripple effects. So make sure that your demand side decisions, the decisions you're making to benefit your customers, also make it easier for you on the supply side. Like having those lower SKU counts led to deeper product knowledge, which enabled lower prices for the customer, or having these smaller grocery stores, which makes it cheaper rent costs and cheaper logistics costs, and it also offers more convenient trips. So this Mac the Knife period continued really until the late 80s. That's when Cologne was starting to look at retiring. He felt like he had done his role over the past 25 years with Pronto Markets First and now leading Trader Joe's for the last 20 years. And interestingly, Trader Joe's was actually sold in the late 70s. So Cologne was thinking about retiring in the late 80s, but he mentions at the end of the book, and it's something I thought he retired in the late 80s and sold the business then, but he waits until the end of the book to talk about how he actually sold the business in the late 70s. He met this family, Theo and Carl Albright, who were entrepreneurs in Germany. They created this simple box store concept with 600 SKUs, so even less SKUs than Trader Joe's, very basic items with low prices in Germany. That's called Aldi now and Aldi is the company that owns Trader Joe's. So he met Theo Albright, and he was convinced that he could sell Trader Joe's, but still keep a lot of autonomy and full decision-making power, even though the German company would own it. It would be the parent company. And we know Cologne had bad experiences in the past with these parent companies, like his first parent company, Rexall, that owned Pronto Markets and decided to sell off Pronto Markets or at least try to sell off Pronto Markets once they acquired the Tupperware brand. So Joe was very skeptical at first, 
But eventually he relented. He realized these guys view grocery retailing very similar to me, this low skew count, very cheap products, but high quality products, this low price and high quality. And he realized it seemed like they will give me decision-making ability. So he sold it in the late 70s and he ended up staying on with Trader Joe's for another 10 years. He had full autonomy, stayed on for 10 years. And that was really this core Mac the Knife period. It's where a lot of these innovations to the modern day Trader Joe's were set in place, like the low skew count and the smaller square foot stores, the prime location decisions. Later on in life, Joe Colombe did mention how he regretted selling the business, as I think all entrepreneurs regret selling their business. It becomes really their baby after a certain period of time. But I think we could all really recognize the huge impact that Joe Coulomb had on the business over his 20, 25 years of running it that really carries through to the modern day Trader Joe's. When we think about the modern day Trader Joe's, it definitely still prioritizes these private label products trying to be unique and different from the mass supermarket chains. It emphasizes these low prices, but still high quality products. It's not very expensive like Whole Foods. It's still priced well because of their product specialties. They have that curation factor. They have low skew counts, curation, smaller stores, smaller square foot stores leading to more convenient trips. And that scarcity effect of constantly cycling the products where you're afraid if you come back next time, your favorite product may not be there. So you end up purchasing more of it. And they still try to emphasize these win-win incentives, paying your employees well, recognizing the employees are important, getting the right vendors and treating the vendors well, and prioritizing the customer above all else, creating this trust, this inherent trust with the customer where you're able to establish a very durable, long-term relationship. You show customers that we're going to offer you these low-cost, high-quality products consistently, and the customers keep coming back. It becomes their main grocery store after a certain period of time, especially with the unique products. Customers become used to these private label and unique products that could only be bought at Trader Joe's. So Trader Joe's has become this big player in the grocery space today, especially in this overeducated and underpaid population, these locations near college campuses or younger people. And they've done really well after Cologne's retirement. They've continued to expand. I believe they have over 500, about 560 stores across the U.S. They're now about 15 to 16 billion in revenues and apparently around 7% profit margins, net profit margins, according to a recent Business Breakdown podcast. So we've learned a ton of lessons from the founding story, Joe Coulomb's founding story of Trader Joe's across those win-win incentives, prime location decisions, and having deep product knowledge, those insights that lead to lower prices, and then optimizing for a great customer relationship. That inherent customer trust leads to this long-term business success. I hope you guys learned a lot and enjoyed this episode. Please share it with a friend if you think they'd like it. I'm excited to continue on the journey and thanks again for listening.